Hello, ACAC Church family and friends. Before we look into God's Word together, I want to echo Greg's invitation to view our recorded conversation on the impact of racism in America. I think you'll find it instructive. I think you'll find it helpful. And I believe it will better position you to hear from the Holy Spirit regarding your role in the ongoing struggle. Now, today as we continue our study of the Bible's opening book, the book of Genesis, we're going to be considering the implications of a word and its context. The word is used two times inside one verse found in Genesis chapter 8. It's part of a declaration that God made first to himself and then subsequently to his faithful servant Noah. Today, I hope to point out an essential strategic truth that is embedded in the context surrounding that word. And I want to warn you, it's an uncomfortable truth, one that has serious implications for Jesus' followers, especially those who are concerned about appropriate, God-honoring responses to the evils that have enslaved this nation and far too often compromised God's church. The truth I'm speaking of doesn't jump out at you. It often goes undetected, and here's why. To hear Scripture, to actually hear it, we must do more than read its words. We must learn to recognize the voice of its author, the Holy Spirit. And the first doesn't automatically lead to the second. The Pharisees of Jesus' day did the first. They began their memorization of God's Word, what we now know as the Old Testament, at age four. And they began memorizing with the book of Leviticus. And by the time they were in their teens, they could quote most of the Old Testament verbatim. But even though they did the first, read the word, they didn't do the latter. Learn to discern the voice of the author of the word. And that became obvious when they subsequently rejected the very Messiah that the Holy Spirit was sent to testify to. The Messiah who fulfilled all of the promises in that written Word. Prior to the declaration we're going to look at today, chapter 8 recounts how God caused the waters of the great flood to recede. And that signaled the merciful conclusion, merciful conclusion of an incredibly hard and stressful year for Noah and his family. One in which he and his family witnessed unprecedented destruction and the end of the world as they had previously known it. A year in which they endured a stressful quarantine, 
a year in which they lived with suffocating sameness and deafening silence, and a time when they likely struggled with what we now know as survivor, survivor guilt. It truly was the best of times and the worst of times. On the plus side, it constituted the long-awaited moment when the red stage gave way to the green stage. Noah and his family were finally able to exit the ark, to send the animals on their way, to place their feet once again on solid ground and resume life inside the new normal that was anything but normal. But on the minus side, it was the moment they found themselves staring into the face of a sobering reality. They were starting over from scratch and they were entirely alone. In that emotion-packed moment, God spoke a promise to himself, one he would later reiterate to Noah and to us, a promise he would never break. It's recorded in Genesis 8, 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. My title today is the single word that we're going to make our focus. It's the word never. Please join me in prayer. Spirit of the living God, we covet your empowering in this moment. I covet it for faithful declaration of your truth. We all covet it for understanding and application of that truth. So Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Today, we not only want to consider the words that you inspired, we want to hear your voice interpreting them in our hearts and our context. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. Last weekend, I suggested when Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, he, always, he also found out some things about grace. Specifically, he found out grace of necessity has a hard side, a tough, invasive, disruptive, uncomfortable, and challenging side, and for good reason. God can't take us where we need to go if we don't first know where we are. And given our tendency to live in denial, 
soft expressions of God's grace rarely help us recognize where we are. They rarely make us aware of the sin that still finds lodging inside our souls. And they rarely help us discern the exact nature of that sin. It takes hard grace to do that. Hard grace births confession, recognition, and repentance. Now, God gave voice to his hard grace in a statement that is sandwiched between the two occurrences of the word never in our text. And we're going to consider that statement. But first, I want to consider what is our word for the day, the word never. And I want to point out to you that the word never takes on different meaning depending on who's articulating it. Let me explain. I want to use the analogy of check writing. And here's the point I want to make. God writes checks that can be cashed. When he says never, it means never. He promised he would never again destroy his creation by water. And history testifies he has kept his promise. God writes checks that can be cashed. But when we speak the word never, we tend to write bad checks. Checks that bounce because of insufficient funds. Let me offer a few examples. When someone says, and we hear this often, the Jesus I serve would never condemn anyone. They contradict God's own clearly articulated words about himself recorded in Scripture. Their never is bogus. They've written a check that God will not cash. Here's another example. Often in the aftermath of a disastrous decision or course of action, we say, well, I'll never do that again. I'm sure all of you have said that at one time or another and then done the same thing again. Our never proved to be bogus. We wrote a check we couldn't cash. Here's another example. We like to say, I would never do that. And then we do it. Peter was notorious for that. He frequently wrote checks his spirit couldn't cash. He said, Lord, I'll never deny you. And then we know he denied Jesus three times. When confronted by a symbolic vision of unclean animals in a sheet, he said, I'll never eat. And then he had to eat his words. <laughs> Many times Peter's never was bogus. He wrote checks he couldn't cash. And that's why we like to say, never say never. And then we say it. Now, why do we do that? Why do we say never 
only to subsequently break our oath and our promise. Sometimes it may owe to hypocrisy, but I suspect the primary culprit is found elsewhere. I suspect it stems from a lack of awareness, specifically awareness of our own hearts. And the reason why we struggle to be aware of our own hearts is embedded in verse 21, sandwiched between the two occurrences of the word never. God said, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's why we struggle with our use of the word never. That's why obedience to God is never automatic. That's why we often need God's hard grace. God told Noah something that God would later expand upon at length in the New Testament. The reality that while God has freed his people from the power of sin... We still have to contend with the presence of sin. And not just in the world, but also in ourselves. And let's be honest. Sometimes we prefer to coast rather than contend. We allow the currents of the world to take us where they will. Rather than swim against those currents. Because swimming against the currents of culture is hard. It's tiring. And the more you do it, the less companions you have with you. Because as the current increases, your companions decrease. That's why, given the right circumstances, God's people are capable of any sin. David was a man after God's own heart. If early in his life you would have said, David, one day you will not only commit adultery, but you will commit murder by proxy, and in between you will lie. David would have said, never. But we know the rest of the story. The reality is, where sin is concerned, we can never say never. Now, I'm not pointing that out to discourage you. I'm pointing it out because if we aren't aware of our sin, we'll struggle to advance God's battle against sin in us and in the world. Precisely because we will employ the wrong weapons and look in all of the wrong places for our resources. Again, let me explain what I mean. Before the new birth, our lives were controlled by what the Bible calls the flesh. Now, when the Bible uses the word flesh, it can mean one of two things. It can mean our actual flesh. And the context makes it clear when that's what the word refers to. But in much of the New Testament, the word flesh refers to something else, something spiritual. It refers to human will, human intellect, and human emotions acting on their own, 
doing their own thing, acting independently of God. And Scripture makes it clear that the flesh is always at odds with God and God's agenda. Always, without exception. That's why the Scriptures say, the flesh profits nothing. Nada. Zero. Squat. When we're born again, God doesn't remove our will. He doesn't remove our intellect. He doesn't remove our emotions because those are essential parts of his image in us. And they are good things in and of themselves. But like the steering wheel, the accelerator pedal, and the motor of your automobile, they were never meant to function on their own. They were meant to function under the guidance of a superior intellect. They were meant to function under the loving guidance of our Creator and our God. But since the intent of the human heart is evil from youth, our submitting to God and His leadership and His guidance is never automatic. That's why Scripture repeatedly calls those who have been born again to put off the old, put on the new, to resist the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Now that's something we have to do. God will certainly help us do it, but He cannot and will not do it for us. That's why the evangelist Vance Havner used to say, spiritual birthdays only tell us how long we've been on the road. They don't tell us how far we've traveled. How far we've traveled depends on our putting off the influence of the flesh and putting on the directives of the Holy Spirit. Now, something that is lost on the casual reader of Scripture is the reality that the flesh is more than willing to do good deeds. Let me state that again. The flesh is more than willing to do good deeds. It's willing to be engaged in good, just causes. Because just as weight training strengthens our physical muscles, doing good things in the strength of the flesh, well, that strengthens the flesh. It increases the influence of the flesh, our confidence in the flesh, and the capacity of the flesh to subsequently lead us into evil. That's why when I teach on this topic at length, I suggest that the best way to keep the flesh from doing evil is to forbid it from doing any good. Everything we do as Jesus followers must be instigated, informed, guided, and empowered by the Holy Spirit speaking through God's Word and speaking directly to us through that Word. If instead it's initiated by our will, our good intentions, our thinking, and our emotions. 
if it's dependent upon our determination, our energy, our courage, our sense of justice, and our compassion, and our strategies, we're going to be disappointed with the results. Because the flesh profits nothing. And it's always at odds with God. So when we act in the flesh, here's what we do. We end up exchanging one form of evil for another. We remove one form, but we implant another form. The sad reality is all attempts, all attempts to do God's work in the flesh eventually end up advancing Satan's agenda. And yes, you heard me right. Satan's agenda in us and in the world. And that's why human political solutions to long-standing societal and personal evils never fully achieve the success they seek and the success we need. Now, I'm not saying political actions and political decisions and laws and policies aren't important. They are. What I'm saying is they're never complete. Never complete. As Jesus followers, safe to say, we are currently living in a season of hard grace. God is revealing perhaps more than ever before, a stubborn evil that has robbed countless men and women of opportunity, advancement, equity, respect, love, hope, peace, and sometimes their lives. A stubborn evil that has robbed countless children of God's desired destiny and future. And sadly, that evil has too often found lodging within the hearts of God's people. Acknowledging that evil is a necessary starting point for obeying God's mandate to do justice. Until we acknowledge the evil, we can go no further. But, but, if our subsequent actions and our engagement and our activism isn't spirit-initiated and spirit-led, if we don't employ spiritual weapons with a spiritual attitude of humility... Well, then our efforts may make us feel woke, but they won't eradicate the evil. Paul reminded us that the wisdom of God is foolishness to those whose understanding hasn't been opened by the Holy Spirit. So this teaching today will sound like utter nonsense, utter nonsense to the world. 
But it shouldn't sound like nonsense to God's born-again people. It should inform our efforts. It should sustain our efforts, our efforts in the cause of justice. So here is my final point. To do what God wants us to do, we must recognize there's something God never calls us to do. He never calls us to do justice in our own strength. Never. Will you join your hearts with mine in prayer? Heavenly Father, we want to get this right. And we freely admit we've often gotten it wrong. We are thankful for the hard edge of grace. For your work of circumcising our hearts. Cutting away the evil that hinders our experience of you and our witness in the world. Today we thank you for your hard grace. But Father, I pray, don't let us waste it. Help us to seize our opportunity. And help us in the midst of this opportunity to recognize an ancient reality that we will never accomplish your work in the world in the strength of the flesh. Only that which is initiated and informed, led and empowered by the Holy Spirit will make a difference. Help us to know the difference. Help us to make a difference. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you.